As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you? I'm doing good, John. It's finally December and is it too early to put up Christmas tree because I've got mine up and I've gotten some some weird responses well I am not wanting to be decried as a modern day Mr. Scrooge but I do not have my Christmas tree up right yet um, usually it's like a last minute thing for me as I frantically try and get everything ready for Christmas and uh, yeah this this year has been no different but speaking of Christmas speaking of gifts speaking of looking forward to good things we have one hell of a show for the listeners to get into today because we're talking all about League 1 I was joined by two of my colleagues Liam Tharm and Alex Barker to talk about the tactical revolution that is happening in League 1 at the moment Mike you've just listened to to that conversation what did you make of it well one popular christmas gift john is money and that's something that league uh doesn't have a lot of compared to the rest of the other big leagues and we get into those financial issues that the league has so in order to make some sort of profit their strategy is really to develop players and sell them and all of that leaves the league with so much turnover and inconsistency the tactics change ever so often because of that player turnover and Alex and Liam really kind of dive into the direction that the league is going in. Yeah and we were lucky enough as well to talk about a couple of coaches who are quite exciting at the moment in Francesco Farioli and Will Still who everyone knows about already but we talk a lot about those but as always the best thing for us to do I think is to just jump straight in with Ligue 1 and its tactical revolution. Ligue 1 has always seemed a little out of place in the so-called top five European leagues. It has garnered a reputation for being a youth development league, and believe it or not, some of its more cynical detractors have even labelled it a farmer's league. What that ignores, though, is that the league is one of the more fascinating leagues in Europe, where reduced finances translate into reduced risks, as clubs can be a little bit more creative in their approaches. And what that has meant in recent seasons is an influx of exciting coaches who have started to imprint their tactical ideas onto the league. You might even 
often describe this phenomenon as a tactical revolution. Well, today we're going to talk our way through some of the reasons behind the shift in French football before talking in greater depth about two exciting examples from this coaching renaissance. And to help me out, I have two of my colleagues from here at The Athletic, Liam Tharm, who is one of our tactics writers, and Alex Barker, who is a videographer and presenter with us in the video department. Now, as I've said, we're going to talk about two coaches who represent this revolution in Ligue 1. But first, let's talk about the context and why Ligue 1 is the perfect place for innovative coaching approaches to thrive. So, Alex, I'll start with you. You've spent a lot of your time watching Ligue 1. Why is that? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of sides to it. From sort of an, an analyst perspective, I think there's so much talent that comes through France that if you're trying to, as I have been, trying to break into the industry as a young guy, trying to get a job in football, I found it an advantage to try and find the next players coming in into the Premier League, usually coming from France, right? But also from a fan side, like they call it the League of Talents. And I think that's really true. My first game ever watched of them was uh, Lyon v PSG. And it was the one where Memphis Depay got like a 96th minute belting finish into the top corner. It's, there's some really good unpredictability in it. So you get a very nice blend, you know, side of, you get to see the next talents coming through. And it just sometimes feels like anything can happen in any game. It's a really entertaining league. Yeah, interesting hearing you talking about it as a league of talent, because I think that the fact that there is that emphasis on youth development um, and, and the talent coming through means that maybe the individual is prioritised over the collective a little bit in in Ligue 1. So um, I suppose the, the big question, what we're going to talk about today is is all about this tactical revolution taking place in Ligue 1. But what is it about Ligue 1 do you think that is, is going to make it the perfect place for this kind of tactical revolution to take place? Or do you think that actually because of the fact that there's been that emphasis on talent, maybe uh, that actually detracts a little bit from the fact that you might see more tactical coaches in the league? Yeah, I think perhaps in the past we've seen that. So before the podcast, I went back and looked at some managers of the top teams in Liga, and I looked at 2016-17 season. And that year, that's when Monaco won it, and they had Leo Jardim um, uh, at Monaco, you had Unai Emery at PSG, you had Lucien Favre at Nice, and yet quite a lot of managers who, you know, they were at big clubs, but they didn't really go on to do so much. Sergio Conceição at Nantes, which is a rogue one. Uh, obviously, he's gone to do well at Porto, but Rudy Garcia at Marseille, obviously not having a good season this year. Bruno Genesio at Lyon, just got sacked at Rennes. And Christian Gorku, oh, Christian Gorku for Ren, uh, Brian Chesney, Leon, yes. And then this season, I feel like when I've list off some of the managers we've got right now, feels like there is a revolution taking place because you look at all of these and you think these managers are going places. So we've got Farioli at Nice, uh, Adi Hutu at Monaco, I guess a bit more of a journeyman. Uh, journeyman. We've got Paolo Fonseca at Lille, who's, you know, I think uh, Seb Safford Blord did an article on him recently. He's really tearing up some trees. Uh, Luca Elsner at La Havre, uh, Love, and he's, I think, 39, I want to say. He's very young, a coach going in the right direction as well. And Frank Kaiser Lawrence, who's, you know, he's had loads of plaudits in recent years. So when you talk about the tactical revolution, I think what we've seen in the past and from my own experience watching Ligue 1, there's quite a lot of basic setups I felt like. Uh, a lot of teams, if you weren't a PSG, maybe this was because of how dominant they were. You just try and sit back, soak up pressure and go on the counter-attack and maybe your your in-possession stuff against deeper sides, that comes from your high-talent individuals. And I think this now we're starting to see you know, a marriage of that talent, right? with some managers coming in and thinking I can maximise these players and implement my own ideas. Yeah, and I think uh, the experience for me and you, Liam, is that we are fairly new to watching Liga in, in the last couple of seasons. Um, it's not been a league that I'd particularly watched before, but this season, because there is that more ex exciting coaching talent there, it's, it's drawn my eye a little bit more. What's your experience been of, of watching Liga? 
Yeah, more so over the the past couple of seasons. To be honest, it's I think it's always had an unfair reputation um, amongst some of the other top five leagues. And I know we'll come on to the finances more broadly, but I think there is such a disparity, particularly just just from the the Premier League and the distribution there uh, of, of finances and the inequality they hold over the other leagues means that top player talent and now top managerial talent just gets completely hoovered up. And we've seen that in Spain where managers have gone from you know European sides to mid-table or bottom-half Premier League teams. So it's very difficult, I think, to expect to have young players maybe more so because clubs, are it costs more to buy that player and it's a bigger risk. But um, yeah, with coaches that they're very quickly, uh, you know, going to pounce on that. And it's definitely, I, I agree with Alex about, you know, seeing it as, as a league of, real quality talent that it does I think have an impact on things tactically and that it can be a bit easier to implement ideas because one with younger players and this is something that the Sorrelix Ferguson always used to say that they're less developed and less refined that you've got more of a more of a player you can mould they're not sort of a, a finished product yet uh, and France has always been ahead of England in particular when you look at sort of the, the youth development with Claire Fontaine and having a formalised you know um, area a, a place to develop these players and that's something I think other parts of Europe have been playing catch up from and maybe they've caught up to them or maybe overtaken them but I think when you have that pathway that's sort of established there's a reason now why even though France haven't won I think the under 21 Euros since you know the late 90s they've consistently brought through talent and I've been amazed watching them on the on the men's senior stage um, I know Deschamps gets his critiques but the fact they've you know made consecutive World Cup finals and um, they've been probably the best side in Europe is uh, is quite something. Yeah, some of our listeners may not know about Claire Fontaine, so can you just briefly explain what that it's, is? It's France's National Footballing Institute, right? So it's what England have now tried to recreate with sort of St George's Park um, and where they sort of develop all their young talent. They can bring it through there um, and it's it's their pathway into into the professional game, really. It's something that Thierry Henry went through and, and as is Kylian Mbappe now and one of the reasons why you know they have a lot of similarities on their journey but you think how far back that's going now for players that have retired um whereas in england uh, the revolution that sort of happened here with academy football was in 2011 so that that was a lot um a lot less recent than, than when it was in france you've already mentioned that the financial context underpins all of this and Obviously, I don't expect either of you to be financial experts, but I did mention in the intro that a big part of the reason why League 1 is so interesting is because of the finances. And predominantly, this is because the league is relatively poorer than its top five European counterparts. And that is a fact that was exacerbated by some of the problems that the league suffered with broadcasting rights during the COVID pandemic. So uh, I've got the top five European league clubs revenue for the 2021-22 season in front of me from Deloitte. Um, obviously, that is uh, around that that period when COVID had hit. If we look at the broadcasting revenue, Liga and down at 729 million euros, which is you know, it's about half of the next highest um, cl uh, league, which is Serie A, which is 1.3 billion. And then you've got the Premier League right at the top with 3.5 billion. Now, Ligue 1 clearly makes up revenue somewhere else because it's only about uh, 0.4 billion behind Serie A in terms of total revenue. But that 2 billion of Ligue 1 that it gen generated in the 21-22 season is, you know, it's, it's under a third less than the, the Premier League as well. And the reason why I've mentioned the, the money is because uh, the clubs in Ligue 1 can perhaps take more risk when it comes to decision making. So we've already talked about youth development, which is something that we always talk about when it comes to the Premier League in terms of can clubs justify playing raw young talent uh, when there's so much at stake. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that that development of, of young talent because um, you've mentioned already, Liam, that um, 
the 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 fact that there's so much talent, young talent development in Liga, and actually makes it quite a good place for um, for uh, tactical innovation to take place. But I think there's generally been a consensus that. Um, when you have young players, that it is harder to implement tactical ideas. What do you think about? What do we think about that? That um, in general, this idea that if there's if the, the league is you know has a lot more young players playing, that it might be harder to develop tactical ideas. Yeah, it's like a pyramid thing, right? If you the more you have at the base, the more you're not getting out of the top. So the sheer volume of young talent that they have, and there's great uh, numbers from from the analyst on, in the last two seasons that the num the number of minutes they've given to under twenty one players in Liga has been almost double the next best league uh, across Europe's top five leagues. That you know they don't even come remotely close. Um, and young players are going to make more mistakes. I think they um, can make sort of not just more but also sometimes worse mistakes they can you know take more time to learn and develop that I think it was Graham Potter who said that often you know players coming through from academy level can sort of need 50 games you know almost that's pretty much well can be one season now but likely two league seasons um, to sort of get up to speed and to, to learn and adjust and the flip side of that is that it does make it a league that can be dominated if you can sort of financially steamroll your way through like PSG have done and, and buy talent, particularly at the top end of the pitch. We're seeing a um, you know a real era now sort of tactical innovation, but it's also coming with a lot of nil-nil draws that we're seeing in Liga. I think one of the highest proportions for a long time. And I wonder how much this is linked to something that, that one of the editors, uh, Dom Fifield, who's, who's got a great background in French football, uh, raised to me was that um, during sort of... Um, the the 1940s to, to do with the war when France sort of, uh, artificially created new national leagues under the, the Vichy regime they limited it to one team from each region so the derbies that you get in French football and this is a slight tangent tend to be regional they're not always within a city you don't tend to get um, multiple teams of, of quality levels all within the same city and I guess that makes it easier for teams individually to develop, to develop talent because it's not like in London where you've got four or five, six Premier League teams that can all sort of scrap and fight um, and poach talent from each other. Um, but then I guess has the issue that once that talent is then made to a good level, um, it can then be taken off by someone elsewhere. Just to hop in there as well, I think the point of could it make more could it make it more difficult as well for youth development? I mean, what French football is known as, right, in terms of youth development, is selling those players on for big value. And maybe in aspects that to bring up here as well, how... You know, I think there is a side of young players who are able to follow instructions, but let's say, let's say you're Lille, they've just won the league game, right? And you're Gaultier and you bring in Yossin Govanek and you've got this squad in front of you. And then Lille, so Bubakari, uh, Sumari, they, they sell, oh, they're going to sell Sven Botman and stuff. That that constant player turnover, you're going to, it's very unlikely as well with the money you have, you're going to bring in similar profiles. So maybe it's an element there as well. Managers constantly having to tweak their tactics. So it's going to be a lack of consistency. Yeah. And like generating or developing sort of good talent through an academy or through a youth system can't realistically happen every single season where you constantly bring through a replacement. It might be like, you know, two or three years that you bring through a couple and then you sell them a fine, you've got the money, but then if you can't recruit the talent, as you're saying, on that level, it's just, it's unrealistic and almost impossible to expect every single year that you develop talent on that level. So I guess they're always kind of playing catch up a little bit. Yeah, and I think as, as well, the this idea that maybe it's harder to instill tactical ideas into young players is, is getting a little bit more dated. I feel as though younger players coming through now are much more tactically uh, conversed than, than, their, than maybe they're some of their predecessors. Um, Alex, you've watched a lot of the the league. Do you get a sense of that reliance on individual brilliance over collective in previous seasons? And do you think that's changing now? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think Lille in particular, they definitely spring to mind when they won the title. I also think of Lyon at the moment as well, and maybe this has been their downfall. I think they've they've had managers in the past, like Rudy Garcia and Laurent Blanc, uh, and Petar Bosch as well, who've they've been blessed with really talented players. Like straight away, everyone listening right now is thinking of Ryan Cherky. But what's happened is the downside of that is either those players get sold on, like, like I mentioned, or those players get ran into the ground. And now we're into a, a situation where Ryan Cherky is not playing in the way that he was maybe a couple of seasons prior. And it, it, yeah, it, it, the, I think the league earned teams, the smarter teams, are beginning to realise that if you're just relying on individual talent, either A, it will get sold, or B, they'll be demotivated. And they won't be able to play as well, and that's when you see things fall apart. And maybe that's how why we're seeing teams that we're going to talk about today uh, able to look past that. And just if they bring in, if they're able to implement better systems, they put the emphasis more on the collective, then maybe they'll be able to find more consistent success on a long term basis. We should probably talk a little bit about PSG because I think PSG have a massive impact on the way that the the, the league unfolds every season. So, again, Alex, you, you've been following league on for a while. What impact do you think that the Qatari sports investment purchase of PSG to be their flagship football club in Europe has had on the rest of the league? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways you can answer this question, but in my head, I think there's... Maybe it sounds a bit niche, but I think the biggest impact here is taking away one of the few Champions League spots. And I think that's what's always held back league and other teams of the past. Well, maybe we're going to talk about it, we can even bring it up now as well. They're, they've been very unsuccessful in Europe, and that's been a stick to hit them with, right? And if you get PSG, who were constantly top two, I don't think they've ever finished outside of the top two under QSI, and there's only three Champions League spots in France, one of them, well, only two of them are guaranteed to the Champions League. It means that teams like it's so much harder to maintain a consistent consistent success, and I feel like it, 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 while it's a lower risk environment, it can almost feel like more up and down. I think like again, I, I can go back to Lille, I can go back to Monaco as well. After they won the title a couple of seasons later, they were fighting in the relegation zone. It feels like very quickly you can experience the highest of football, and then if you finish fourth in Ligue 1, that's a huge difference there. I think PSG, that's the, the basis I think of. When I think of PSG in Ligue 1, I don't necessarily think of them dominating the league in first being the big problem because that happens in other leagues like the Bundesliga, right? I think the biggest problem there is in a league which is already at a disadvantage, they're making it harder for other clubs to bring in consistent revenue. I think that's been the biggest impact in French football. Yeah, it's made some of the top end quite volatile and you, you don't really get a set... Um, sort of group of teams sort of from from second down to, to fifth and sixth and I, I know we'll come on to that but it, it's compounded by the fact that French teams just haven't won enough on the European stage um, they've won two of the 16 Europe, European finals that they've ever contested of course PSG most recently losing to Bayern Munich uh, in, in the Champions League final um, and there's not been a French European winner of any silverware since PSG uh, in 1996 and they've uh, been in four finals this century French teams collectively uh, and they've lost all four so I think that will also impact the perception because if you can't go and become one of the, the, the best teams in Europe and that might well change this season when you look at the success they're having with, with their Euro Europa League teams in particular um, and possibly now with the Conference League too, um, that might start to change things a little bit but they're definitely again playing catch up to the heavyweights that you've then got across uh, you know Spain in particular but also England and Germany. 
Hmm. Well, let's move on. You both mentioned that we should talk about European spots in Ligue 1. Um, I've got everything written down here, but it's it's, it's a long old um, <laughs> screed of text. So let's just say there's basically the, the top five clubs in Ligue 1 have a chance of going to Europe in some form or other. They get two Champions League spots and then a qualification spot in the Champions League uh, preliminary rounds. And then fourth place in the Europa League, fifth place in the uh, the Conference League, and then there's a sixth spot which is given to Europa League for the winner of the Coupe de France. Um, so the long and short of this, I think, is that you've got five places up for grabs for well, six, including the the, the League uh, Cup, but, but obviously that uh, is a little less consistent than, than trying to fi- finish in the top five places. But as you've said, there's a lot of volatility in at the top of the table. That means that there's a big chance of being able to get your team into the top five if you have a good run. And I think what we're seeing this season is that there's a, a few coaches in that top five who have not been there for a huge amount of time. Some of them are at clubs where you might not necessarily expect them to do well or this well. Uh, and so I think that we're starting to see that realisation then that if you bring in a good coach, you can actually get the collective playing better than the sum of its parts. And that can be good enough to get you into European spots. That is going to generate more income for you um, and and obviously that is it's almost a cheat code to to doing quite well uh, in in French football so let's just run through so th- the top of the table we've got PSG at the top and then we've got Nice under Farioli Farioli joined last summer and then we've got Monaco in third place under Adi Hutter who joined last summer and then we've got Fonseca who joined the summer before so just two seasons or a season and a, I mean, a season and however long we we've had so far yeah season, season and a third we'll go with uh, and then we'll still so midway through last season with Stade Reims. so what we've got here is is a bunch of I, I would say young, uh, exciting coaches, largely speaking, who have actually been able to have a short-term impact on their club by bringing in uh, modern ideas, um, and and that has you know that has prompted this coaching revolution that we're seeing in Ligue 1, right? The realization that actually good coaching can can turn things around quickly, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so completely. Um, it, I don't think it's the only league that's doing that now. I think across sort of England's tiers, that's that's definitely happening. I think there was a stat that six of the last 12 managers appointed in the EFL didn't have a sort of a playing background and the average age generally has definitely come down um, and it just makes sense because it's it's a league that has always you know given a, a place for you talent to thrive whether that be on the pitch now or, or off it as well um, and obviously we'll come on to the, the, the differences sort of between them but I think it's interesting that within those four teams there's there's some overlap but there's also four sort of quite different unique styles of play not always quite at extremes but teams that uh, are very clear if you compare Fonseca someone that's got very clear sort of like possession ideals um, same with Hutter being very sort of attack and front foot dominant um, and then Farioli being a bit more pragmatic and still being quite adaptable so it's also interesting that there's sort of different ways of doing it there's not you know and there never will sort of be a blueprint but um, it's definitely one of the most sort of diverse I think tactical leagues um, especially where I now sort of see critique I feel like particularly in Italy that it can be a bit tactically turgid that and even the top end Premier League games now feel a lot more um, cagey. That yeah, you do really get this variety. I would add as well. I think from the coach's perspective, um, I think you get a bigger motivation going to Liga now because, you, well, let's say you go to a Monaco or a Lille, you go to a club who have are going to have a very good uh, good youth recruitment and a very good youth academy. Certainly Monaco and Lille's case, right? And then you're taking over a team that's got a very good fan base as well. 
and a team that can quite easily get into European football, as we say, is that all the things you want as a coach in terms of exposure and implementing your system, you get to stick every single one of those things off. Like I think recent years, like Marseille is probably the team that every coach in the world now avoids, well, at least casually we probably view as. But you look at Igor Tudor, who was there last year, he stayed one season and now you know it's reported constantly that he's waiting in the wings for the Juventus job, he was in for the Napoli job. You can very quickly boost your resume in France uh, it just seems all the conditions in that environment there are right for a coach now. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to, to mention because I think what we get with Ligue 1 now is a concatenation of different factors which make it you know possible to have that kind of coaching revolution. So we've talked about the fact that there's lower risk because there's less money at stake so there is the possibility to be a little bit more creative uh, perhaps than you might be in other leagues but you're also playing in a league where there is the talent to be able to do top end elite tactical um, stuff as well so bring all of these things together and, and what that means is that I think league on is probably uh, just the perfect league to, to have this sort of tactical tactical development in now we need to move on to talk about a couple of the coaches that we've already mentioned here but it is worth saying that this phenomenon isn't just about you know bringing coaches into richer clubs uh, to give them tactical better tactical approaches although as you've said Monaco clearly benefit from from that and, and the youth system they have there but actually some of the clubs in the top five teams here are actually surprising because they don't necessarily represent higher talent ceilings of squads who just need a better manager in fact what's actually interesting about some of these sides is they brought in coaches who've implemented particularly modern out of possession ideas in order to get more of an upside from um, from their teams as well and you know we're seeing teams like for example Stade Rennes they lost recently to PSG but actually I thought they were they caused them a lot of problems in that game so you're bringing in a, 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 coach, a young coach like Will Still implementing modern out of possession ideas and then actually being able to challenge PSG toe to toe in, in in the league so what do we make of the fact that this coaching revolution seems to be powered in part by the imp- implementation of particularly out of possession ideas uh, I think it's from watching the game over the years it's not in a sense it's not super surprising I kind of hinted it I think in the one of the first questions right that it felt like and I haven't got necessarily the empirical evidence to show this, but it did feel like every team you'd watch that wasn't PSG or maybe like the team doing well that year, like a Monaco, was playing playing an out-of-possession system that was very zonal, mid-block or a deep block, just sitting back, trying to soak up pressure and going forward. I think that kind of... I think that's fueled by the fact that if you're able to have a really strong season, I think Stade de Rams had one, uh, we'll touch on later as well, where it was way before Will Still came in, they like finished top 10 despite being a club of a really low budget. If you can you know, overperform the numbers for a year doing that, then you might be able to get into Europe. But the downside is then you're likely to fall away in the next year. Maybe that's what contributed to volatility. So I think it's quite a logical step now we're seeing managers come in with his out-of-possession approach and seeing such gains. Because for me, at least, it's felt like the bar has always been... It's harsh to say on the floor, like there's nothing wrong with playing a deep ball, there's nothing wrong with playing like a, you know, a David Moyes team, for example. But because it was so widespread across the league, it's interesting, I think, seeing... It's not super surprising, rather, to see the gains from a couple of those teams. Like, you know, a better way to word it would be, I think, something I always try and think about in tactics is there's no supreme tactic, right? Like teams often counter each other, I think. What we're seeing at the moment is that teams have a good out-of-possession approach, countering teams, uh, countering the rest of the league who are playing predominantly similar football. And that's what it's always felt like in France. Mm. 
Well, let's move on and talk about two of those coaches. So we're going to start off by talking about Nice and Francesco Farioli. Um, Liam, you've just written a piece for The Athletic looking at Nice under Farioli. And obviously people love to talk about the fact that Farioli was one of Roberto De Zerbi's assistants at Sassuolo. Um, but although it, it is quite tempting to reading as De Zerbi 2.0, Actually, the similarities between them are not as noticeable as, notable mm. as people might think, right? I think not in terms of principles. Um, I mean, anyone that's that's watched Nice will, I think quite a lot of people find them boring or, or quite sort of stagnant, which I I think is harsh that I've been from a coaching perspective. I'd, I'd look at that as a really good way of controlling games. Um, they deal an awful lot in settled possession, which is kind of the opposite of what Dezebi wants a lot of the time, where he wants to, you know, to sort of facilitate transitions or moments to attack directly. You compare the, the goals per game in terms of goals scored and goals conceded um, between Brighton and Nice and their complete opposite ends of the table. I don't, don't know when the last time Brighton kept a Premier League clean sheet and Nice have had, um, I think it's 10 now in their first 13 games. So they're they're really controlled. The, the one where they are quite similar is sort of, in their build-up, they tend to play short an awful lot. They'll have the back four quite deep. They'll bring in, they play a 4-3-3, so generally it's it's the, the deepest midfielder, um, the, the pivot, and then two number eights that tend to come quite close towards the goal, really beta press, and then basically leave a 3v4 on the halfway line where they've got Taylor Moffi, who is a you know phenomenally technical and physical player that can go 1v2. They've got Jolimi Bogo on the left, who is a great dribbler, and Gaetan Laborde on the right, who's sort of a bit more of an inside forward but three players that they can sort of get the ball to stick to and they can get out that way and sort of release their the midfield runners so it's kind of a similar principle of you know trying to bait the press to them getting behind but they can be a lot more cagey that when they do get into settled possession the the fullbacks come in quite narrow and um, they will overlap in the final third but it's a lot more settled keep the ball I mean they've not been behind in the game this season they are the best defence in Europe in the top five leagues um they're really balanced. They don't give away an awful lot in transition. Um, and it's just made them really hard to beat and really hard to break down. You look at some of the teams as well that they've beaten. They've not just sort of beaten, you know, worse teams or lower ranked teams below them. They've gone, I mean, PSG was a bit more counter-attacking when they won away, but um, they've beaten Marseille, they've beaten Monaco, admittedly, with two penalty saves. But they've they've done really well against really high-quality opposition. Yeah, and you've already started mentioning some of the, the numbers there. Obviously, the numbers are very impressive. Um Farioli in particular, as we're saying, has, has been blowing the defensive numbers out of the water this season. So, Alex, do you want to talk us through some of those numbers? Yes, uh, I'm I'm trying to keep this brief because you could just go on and on about the defensive numbers. They are mind-blowing. So, Nice are yet to go behind the game so far this season, which feels ridiculous to say out loud still. Uh, they have an expected goals against of 10 um, at the moment, but they've only conceded four goals. Uh, which is the best defence in Europe by a long way. In fact, only Inter, Juventus, Madrid and Bayern Munich have conceded under 10 in Europe this season. They've got the lowest non-penalty expected goals uh, against per 90 in the league as well. I think that's because a couple of teams have finished a bit lower. It's annoying we can't use the totals there. But I think one thing I want to hammer home as well um, is Marcin Bolka, the goalkeeper, because there's so much, there's so much going on that's interesting about the tactics at Nice that he could quite easily fall by the wayside in this discussion. So I want to get him in early. Um, in terms of uh, post-shot expected goals against, which measures the, the quality of a shot right um, on a FB ref, uh, Bolka is the second best goalkeeper in Europe in terms of the positive. The only one ahead of him is Arthur uh, Demont at L uh, Love. I'm looking at Liam each time because he knows his French pronunciations a lot better than me. I don't think I know it that well. <laughs> the, the, effort, the effort, listeners, is what I'm trying to get in here. But um, yeah, Bolker's had a really good year, especially it's, it's all more impressive because 
this is his first season ever as a starter. He's been at Chelsea and PSG, which is probably why some people feel like they know that name and he's just never started. So to come in and be at this level is crazy. But yeah, Nice as a whole are really on top as well. And one final little stat I'll throw in here, which one for the nerds, I think. Uh, nice have got the furthest... Uh, how to word this? Teams against Nice are taking their shots from the furthest away in all of Ligue 1, uh, 20 yards out, <laughs> which is quite right laughable, to be honest. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You mentioned there, and Liam mentioned already, that, that Nice haven't been behind in a game so far this season in yeah. 13 games, which is quite ridiculous. But yeah. maybe worth talking a little bit about game state effects. So by game state effect, what we mean is that if you're losing in a game, it can be much harder to control games, uh, get back into games, much easier for the opposition to control games than if you're in a drawing or a winning game state. So thoughts on this, Liam? Do we think that um, there's a situation here where actually if uh, Nice do go behind in a game, we might see a very different story emerge? Yeah, you'd expect to see that. I think it's it's entirely fair. I had someone ask me, they were like, do you think this is sort of sustainable? And I said, probably not, because you, you just can't get away with going through a whole season um, you know, without conceding chances and, and without conceding goals. As I mentioned, they... Bolka made two really good penalty saves uh, against Flo Balogun uh, in the in the derby de Côte d'Azur, um, and that kept them obviously in the game. And they won that with a very late goal. Um, I think Ren hit hit the post and the bar. I think they all the woodwork twice against them. So, yes, at times they they've sort of ridden their luck, but they're playing what I think looks like really good tournament style football. And I don't say that in an insulting way, but obviously you know you don't lose thirteen games that would win you a Champions League or a European trophy. Um, and then the way you become a good league team is. Okay, it's how you then respond to when you go ahead in games, they've controlled it really well. And when you go behind, can you be reactive? Can you respond? As a, as a way of comparison, I think Inter, who reached the Champions League final last season, weren't as good at that in the league that they could actually see out teams quite well when they did score first. They were good um, and they share some similar defensive principles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to Nice and to, to Farioli. Um, but when they did go behind, they struggled and they, they, you know, I think they end up with three draws in the league. So it's one of those situations where we don't know yet how um, Nice will respond. But there was a, a fascinating quote from Farioli in the keep, and, and John actually pointed me in the, the way this article where he said, "We want to have control over the game. We work on variations in pace. What we were trying to do is not move the ball, but move the opponent through the movements of the ball. You have to spot the right moment to change pace." and Peter Rutzler, who's one of our, uh, well, he covers Fulham, but PSG as well, and one of our writers, he made a good point to me that these games tend to go through sort of flows of being really um, organised and really controlled, whether they have the ball or the opposition have the ball, and you know it will be really organised build-up in, in a real settled possession, and that will be punctuated then by a turnover or a regain or a mistake, and either team tries to launch a transition. And it's then how you defend those moments in, in the counter-attack, and in Boga and in Moffi in particular, they've, they've got some great transition players. Mm. You've mentioned control there, um, and control not just with the ball but without the ball as well and I, I think we should start moving on to talk a little bit about why Nice are so good defensively and I think the answer to that question is going to have to do with their the high press um, which they they use sort of hybrid principles we can talk a little bit about that but also they've got this really interesting uh, use of a flexible back five uh, you mentioned Inter as well obviously they play a back five with quite a lot of flexibility as well but let's just talk through those two phenomenon first so in terms of the the hybrid press again Liam in your article you touched on this a little bit because they do some interesting things with, uh, with with particularly Laborde in in, in how they f- uh, form up their usual four usually a four four two shape, right? Yes, I mean Alex might have seen more of Laborde than I did when it when he was at Ren, but um, he can sort of play as a as a striker as well. And what he does in in the press is he'll generally join Moffy on the edge of the eighteen yard box, and they'll if they're playing into the back four, that'll be two centre backs. They'll just line up uh, up against your position um, centre back. So they're kind of sliding the team round from the right, which often we see teams, if they're going to go four four two. I think Napoli were an example last season, tend to push a central midfielder up a number eight and then just tuck around the other two. Otherwise, this obviously makes you a lot more lopsided. Mm-hmm. Often then they're requiring either a central midfielder to jump out to the opposition left back because the board's vacated that space or they've gone with their right back pushing up a lot as well and then tucking around to have a left back and two centre backs on the halfway line. At times, it's worked really well. Um, the, there's a goal they score at PSG where I think it's Latomba, the right back, manages to um, go all the way with Mbappe and sort of force a turnover. Um, and again, this thing comes back to Ligue 1 being a great league for sort of talent development, but I think you don't always get the precision or just the ruthlessness of the build-up that you sometimes get in some of the other European leagues where you know if your press is half a second late or a player slightly unmarked, it sort of gets played through completely that at times, and I think John has seen this when we've watched games, that there's there's been a moment where they could have played a certain pass against the East Press or they could have gone half a second earlier and they didn't. Um, so they maybe benefit from that, but then Farioli can only set up the press against the teams that he's facing. So it does really suit the league that they're playing in. Um, and it's, it's caused numerous teams real problems, to be fair. And they've got on the back line, Dante's got great experience. Um, Tadibo, who's widely expected, I think, to be one of the next players coming out of France for a big fee, has got quite a good athletic profile to defend going the other way. Just something to add as well, to, like, to really sell like how, I guess, bizarre the press is, is the word I think we've all des- used to describe it, is that... like. As Liam, you said, like it puts more, I guess, pressure on the right back in the press because they often have to be looking at two players to mark. And Nice's right back has, like, their first team right back has changed like three times this season. They had Yusuf Atal, who's been banned by LFP. They've had Pablo Rosario, who's a midfielder, and he's been put in at right back as well as Jordan Latomba. So it's, it's even weirder. Like, it's not necessarily. It's hard to argue, right, that this this ta- this tactical decision has been driven by like a really good right back. It's like 
three players rotating in there. It's very interesting. Yeah, and I think that's what's so fascinating about the way that Nice have developed this season even because obviously if you're going to jump to a 4-4-2 shape with one of your wide players moving inside it's creating a weakness and, and these high presses always create weaknesses somewhere and what we saw I think early on in the season was that that weakness was solved by pushing one of the central midfielders forward as you said and then having Dante stepping up to cover the player that the central midfielder um, was, was, was leaving by stepping up into the uh, fullback area and this is, what, this is what is at stake when you high press is that you are creating a weakness the question is how you're going to cover that where you want to uh, allow that weakness to end up in the back line so I think what we've seen this season has been so interesting because it looked super aggressive when they were doing it that way right it looks super open with with Dante stepping into midfield and leaving 1v1 against the opposition's front line at the back that's a it's a very sort of aggressive way of playing and interestingly since then we what we've seen is that the Farioli's clearly decided I would rather have that weakness opening up in the right back area as you've talked about rather than in the, the sort of centre back area um, because it can be quite easy to, for teams to exploit simply by going long and, and, and uh, approaching the, the weakness in terms of just long balls into 1v1 matchups across the pitch so yeah that brings us I think quite nicely to the flexible back five mm. because the way that it seems as though Farioli has solved that problem is by um, yeah is by actually having this system where he can um, push a player back into the back four to make a back five and then you have the flexibility then for players to respond to where the weaknesses is opening up a little bit more knowing that if you step up you're going to be leaving four players behind you in a, in a back four so which one of you wants to talk to us about the exciting flexible okay. back, back rock, five rock paper scissors situation <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw something in just early as well this is like this is kind of a precursor um, to it, it I, I watched these last season when um, Lucien Favre went out and uh, I imagine well the assistant got promoted Didier Degas what was interesting is Nice under Lucien Favre's second stint, horrible mess, like absolutely woeful. Everything was going wrong. Degas came in and it, what was interesting, he got Nice to try and play a bit more of a, an intense press, a high press. And it was nowhere near as detailed as what Farioli is doing, nowhere near as rigorous. But what was interesting I found is the weakness that they kept coming up against, and that's why I'm bringing it up now, is that when teams would beat it, it would leave Dante and Todibo as the back two. And they were as the ball kind of got moved diagonally from out wide where Nisa trying to trap him in, it moved diagonally towards the centre-backs and they'd get quite quickly overrun. So I'm putting that in because, you know, this flexible back five we could talk about, that's kind of got rid of that issue completely because if you leave three back players, it's a lot harder to get overrun. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Liam, why don't you talk to us about it? <laughs> I think, I don't want to overplay this because I, I feel like this is going to be very along the lines of... Um, Will still no pro license, but Farioli's <laughs> background in in philosophy. I, I just think more generally, regardless of what he studied, that the fact that he didn't have a conventional sort of playing career professionally, that he seems very keen to just sort of challenge any ideas and be like, I'm not just going to do something because that's what I was taught to do for the sake of it. These like his principle is that they challenge a lot of things, so it doesn't surprise me that he's prepared to try things that might look, at least to us who have been very ingrained to watching a certain Eurocentric style of football, that look a bit weird or a bit different. Um, I agree with you as well. The fact that, and this is the same with the the flexible back five, and that um, primarily in Diashime has been their defensive midfielder that's dropped into the back line between the centre backs to to make a, a five four one. Um, normally teams would sort of go four five one, wouldn't they? And then you have more of an opportunity to press with a central midfielder sort of stepping out. They seem more content to let the opposition have the ball. They're quite good at turnovers um, when they can sort of, you know, then regain and, and explode and go forward. Um, but he's continued to do that when Kefran Turam has, has had to fill in. I think in Diashime was suspended um, for the game against Montpellier. Um, 
And he's, yeah, then when you continue doing the same tactic, even when you've not got the same players or the same personnel to do that, it's clearly then more about, I want this team to play in a certain way rather than I'm trying to maximise uh, the strengths or minimise the weaknesses of this certain player. Yeah, I love the fact that you mentioned that what's essentially happened is the flexibility has moved out of central midfield into the back line. That's that's what's happened. And I think the reason for that is, as we've said, with these with these sort of hybrid presses, and by hybrid press, what I mean is uh, a press where you're going to be zonally, you're going to be in a zonal block when the ball's deeper in the field, but in certain situations, you're going to try and force these uh, man-to-man scenarios where you go really aggressive, don't give the opposition any chance to pass the ball out from the back. But the problem is, with that is that often what happens is that your front pressing unit gets dis- disconnected from your defensive line and so you can end up with a, a gap between uh, your, your pressing unit and the defensive line which can be then exploited by teams like Manchester City are the, uh, are the gold standard here because their whole thing is about finding free men between lines and if you're doing that kind of aggressive press it can leave you exposed and what we're seeing now I think with these sorts of flexible back fives we talked about Inter um, we actually saw something similar at play with Stadirans playing against PSG um, which we, we can maybe talk a, about in the next section um, but what we're seeing now is that, that that flexibility now is being moved back so that you're not leaving yourself exposed and you you have the ability to be flexible so you've said Indashimi likes to drop into the back line in between the two centre-backs but what happens is he becomes the de facto centre-back so he'll often be tracking the striker the opposition striker which frees up one of the two centre-backs then to be a lot more flexible so that if as we've said the right back is going to jump really high up to the other uh, the opponent left back then you you still have a, a effectively a right back playing there as well. I think this is this is uh, really really interesting. But Alex, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to mention as well. Like you've kind of touched on it here. Like the flexibility to drop into like a five four one block. And it's a, a good point to mention some stats I found about Nice's possession because I think like away from the press in a sense, like that flexibility to drop into what I think we're seeing more and more across Europe from like the Brentford sort of style teams that can take down you know, the super clubs, where they're just able to play out, for lack of a better term, a really dirty, horrible-to-beat defensive block with five at the back. And if you, I don't know if you guys have seen Nice's possession against opponents this season. Like, at one scale, you've got versus Lille, v Monaco, v PSG, all under 45%. Like, against the big teams, they're really low. And then against, like, the likes of Metz, Strasbourg, Lorient, like, 59 to 68%. So that flexibility is so interesting. You can see it in the stats, like... Nice have that ability to press high, like you said. Or if they want to, they can just drop deep and just shield their goal completely, which leads all the way back to what started this question of why they're so good defensively. So you get the same sort of flows of how they, you know, the principles of when they will press and how they will press. Just the frequency of them and that compared to how much possession they do or don't have and the way they build up just changes based on the quality of the opponent that they face. Mm. And that brings us quite nicely to talking a little bit about the relationship between the attacking and defensive play for Nice. Because if, if there is any criticism, it's that uh, Nice very much, you know, their out of possession approach, I would say, is quite conservative in terms of their thinking predominantly about not allowing opportunities for the opponent. Uh, and that does have a knock on effect when they're going forward. They don't generate maybe as many or as dangerous chances as they could. Um, as you've said, in settled possession, they can be quite conservative. So do we do we think that's a, a, a bad thing to to have a, such a strong defence? I mean, this is the Arsenal question, right, all over again that we talk about in the Premier League. Is it is it better to have a, be- a an attack that's dangerous or is it better to be defensively solid? 
again, this comes back to a discussion I think John and I have a lot um, about it depends how you want your football to be played and how you want to, to try and win games. I think what will really interest me is when Nice play all of these teams again later in the season, how they cope now. Because I don't think it's sort of like a, a shock factor per se, but there's definitely a stubbornness and an awkwardness of playing against them that I wonder if one, once teams have played them before and have you know a game to look back on, they've had an experience playing them, if they can then find more solutions more easily when they play them in, in the reverse fixture. Um, I, I think he's really raised the, the floor of Arioli really, really high. Um, the ceiling feels like it's probably still quite low, um, but I think in terms of when you look at how the, the league is designed, I, I think having a, a strong defence right now has, has been really good. I mean, the league has become quite defensive overall. There's not been a huge ton of goals, in part because a lot of the talent of the top goal scorers have actually gone out. Um, so that's had an impact. But I think if they've got any European ambitions, having the strong defence is a really good way to go. Um but again, they're, they're equally going to be teams that will score, like Monaco, a great example, that will score and concede a lot and that will also be up in those positions. So you can do it either way. You've just got to be really good at it, whatever you do. Yeah, and I think, I, I guess if you were to, if you're Farioli, what you'd probably say is the quote you um, brought up at the start, which is that they want to move the opponent about them waiting for that opening he's hinting at. I think, I, I think if, as long as that's how Nisa approaching games, that's going to lend to them better. I think... It, it, it's hard to phrase properly, especially since I'm not in Farioli's shoes, but I'd be more worried if Nice were, you know, if the aim was to try and create like higher quality chances early on, consistent basis. I think the fact he knows it's a patience game and he wants that control and waiting for the opponent to make a mistake, that's going to lend well in his favour. And like, I feel like that's what encourages me a bit to thinking that Nice can last a season in this sort of strong form. Yeah, and I always talk about trade-offs when it comes to tactical decisions, right? As, as Liam said, you know, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat, cook a cat. I can't skin. remember. Skin, skin a cat. <laughs> what well, are you doing in your spare time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pre presumably you skin a cat to cook a cat, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll remain with that metaphor. But I guess the big question for me is, okay, if you're defensively conservative, that may have an impact on your attacking numbers. Do we think that with... Um, Farioli's niece that actually there is quite a lot of potential for him to retain a strong defensive base and actually in inject a little bit more um, attacking momentum yeah and of course you can but I think you then come at the compromise of possibly having an impact on, on the defensive numbers so really I think what, what will be a real test for them, a real litmus test is obviously when they do go behind in the game or they do lose a game at some point in the season it's whether that becomes a run of consistently sort of going behind and we'll come on to, to Hams, um later on but they're an example of a team that went on a phenomenal unbeaten run and then ended the season by losing a lot of games in, in quite a big streak and it's like it's okay when you're sort of consistently doing the same thing but once that gets broken can you be adaptable can you find different ways I think there's some to gain as well from this attack like I think if we're talking about Nice like potentially dropping off it's more like defence I, I actually think the attack will will gain. Like it's worth mentioning as well the front three they usually play with Terra Moffi, Gaetan Laborde, who we've already spoken about, and generally Jeremy Bolger. Like that you could borderline say that's a Europa League attack, right? That's not a particularly high level attack. So you, on one hand you I feel it's hard to say, you know, Farioli should be getting more out of it. And on the other hand, you've got players like Kefran Taram, who much hype in the summer, I'm sure all Liverpool fans know everything about him by now, right? He's had a kind of an inconsistent start to the season. He's not started it anywhere near as strongly as he finished last year. I feel like once he gets going, that will be very interesting because he also had something, again, what Degas was doing at Nice last season. It was quite short term for a couple of months, but he's able to get goals by just powering players like Taram in the box who are very tall and finishing off crosses. So I think there's more angles and more gains to come from Nice mm. in the attack. 
Yeah, so lots to look forward to, I think, from the rest of the season for Nice. Um, we need to move on because we still have, still, yeah, still will yeah. to talk about. We'll still. Um, everyone was talking about will still last season because, uh, as I've written in the running order, the narrative is strong with this one. There was, mm. as you've mentioned, he didn't have his pro license. Uh, Rams were paying money to have him on the touchline, um, and he is an exciting young English coach who grew up in Belgium. So has a really interesting story there as well. Uh, the Athletic has just put out a story with him and his two brothers who were also in the coaching industry as well. So lots of really interesting aspects to him. Alex, is there a case to be made that people should be talking more about Will Still this season than they were last season because it seems as though he's still doing some good stuff with Rance this season? Well, quite simply, yes. I think there is a lack of real eye-catching stuff that we had last season that got him in the headlines. Uh, but Nice, current, uh, nice Ram, Rams currently sit fifth under Will Still, uh, doing a lot better in terms of points than they were last season, even under him. I think if you look at the league and table from when he came in um, to the point uh, the season finished, even then uh, they were about mid-table um, for points. So they're really in the European, European spots at the moment. Uh, I think there's just some elements there like we're kind of hinting at, right? Like their goal difference is currently zero, scored 18, conceded 18. They, in some, they lack that real eye-catching thing uh, to mark them out as, oh, wow, this team's doing really well. But They've definitely taken steps forward this season that we're going to get into. And uh, I think it's worth mentioning early on as well, they they actually seem to be going a bit more... Uh, they're, they're, they're treating themselves as a bigger club. Like, they've broken their transfer record three times this summer. Uh, three players brought in for 12 million euros. And I was reading a really interesting thing at the moment. While over here in the UK, we might not be hearing much about him. The um, uh, Rem president was talking about how attendance is a sky high at the moment. And interestingly... Uh, which does go into the wider culture about this. He said young fans in particular go into games and they feel able, they're able to really connect with Will still. Uh, see, while we're not hearing much over here, like in France, like I don't think his stock has ever been higher. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of young fans who've been across the sea, <laughs> Rams play. Liam, you've been yeah. to see Rams, Rams play this, I d- this I season. I did. I went to see them against Monaco. Um, the, the Stade Auguste de Long, if anyone gets a chance to go, is a, it's a wonderful ground, very, very beautiful. I'm very jealous. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's an incredible place. And um, there there was, I think, probably one of the... I'm, I'm not entirely across all sort of French football fan culture, but the fact that even when they were, were 3-0 down against Monaco um, at, at home, sort of early into the second half, they had a, a slight wobble, a little bit of a collapse and conceded two quick goals. The, the fans are all still bouncing and, and chanting his name. There's quite clearly um, recognition that he's done a really good job. I think it's almost even, there could even be more narrative this season because he's brought in his, his younger brother, uh, Nico, I think it is, um, to come as an assistant who looks like almost more like Will Still than Will Still looks like Will Still. <laughs> um, and I even noticed sort of during their warm-up and we'll, we'll come on to sort of their, their out-of-possession approach, but they can be really, really intense, particularly in midfield. And they're, they're really quite um, engaging to watch in that regard that they'll sit off teams for a bit. They can be quite a compact mid-block and then that pass goes into midfield and, th- and they've really come alive. There was a period where they were top for, I think, sort of tackles and interceptions. Um, and if, if you watch their warm-ups before a game, there's a lot of intense stuff where they're sort of doing short passing, sprints away. Um, clearly this idea now of, I think, integrating more of a, I don't really like the word philosophy in a footballing context, but a desired style and, and wanting to play a certain way. Whereas the impression that I got from from seeing you know, still doing some some media work and um, some of the social stuff that he's done was 
a lot of it, the early work, you know, sort of this time last year, he's been in the job just over a year, was a lot of containment. It was stopping them sliding down the table. They faced some top quality opposition early on and it was very much a case of being opposition focused first of how do we stop what they're good at doing and now it's a case of I think making it more how are we going to attack how are we going to defend yeah that's, that's interesting so we're seeing a little bit of uh, evolution from from Will still this time around um, you mentioned when we were chatting before the podcast actually Liam about it's not just the case that that Will still is is evolving this season but also rounds are evolving as well they're playing a different style of play to how they've played in the past Alex you've obviously watched them in the past what do you make of the the fact that Rans have now started playing, uh, moving from uh, from what you were saying, I think, a, a bit more of that standard French approach of mid-block, low-block, try and counter, to now a, a much more front-foot front approach out of possession? Yeah, being honest, it feels weird. They're one of the first teams, um, when I really started diving into French football around 2019, they're one of the first teams I've watched and one of the first teams I started writing about. And this was an era where they had Boulaidier, um, who I think is probably still at Salernitan, they went to Villarreal. He was carrying them completely. This is the time when they had Hassan Kamara completely, like the most tackles interceptions in all of Europe, right? Like just completely defensive. And it didn't feel like that was changing. And now Will Sims come in and yeah, he's taken the, the team in such a positive direction and on one hand I say it feels weird on the other hand like it's going to come up we're going to talk about it like they're all very big club in, in French history they're like, I mean they're the first losing Champions League finalists or European Cup finalists uh, lost to Real Madrid in the very first one I believe uh, in, Paris. in Paris oh wow that is typically French in European football um, but yeah it feels, it feels very interesting and, and strange especially the recruitment as well like the players recruited I'm sure we're going to talk about Teddy Tumor at some point so I'll save my words but doing some really smart things um, both on and off the pitch hmm. well let's talk a little bit about the the in uh, the out of possession thing so a Freudian slip from me there what's the opposite of a Freudian slip um, let's talk about slip the out of possession <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll still again we've talked about hybrid pressing we talked about it with Farioli very much in terms of going man-to-man -man in certain phases and then being able to have the flexibility to be able to block the weaknesses, stop them from becoming an issue. But I think what we see from Will still is a little bit more uh, similar to what I, I would describe as maybe Iriola's pressing style, which is uh, you're, you're trying to, you're a little bit more um, front foot, you're trying to cause problems, you're trying to um, force these situations where um, the whole team can move in, in one moment when you pick that moment to jump and then you just make it very hard for the opposition to build up at all, try and win the ball back and, th and then have these um, uh, aggressive counter-attacks. So we saw that happened actually quite a lot against PSG um, in that 3-0 loss that we've already mentioned. And I think this is really interesting because because of that aggressive press, Rams were able to control the game for long stretches, but then they got undone a couple of times when PSG, PSG did break the press. So uh, they got, got through that really difficult moment and then uh, it, it was fair to say I think that Rams were a little bit overexposed. And when you go in those moments against a team with the sort of transitional capabilities of PSG, then it can be it can be um, quite disastrous. So what do we make of this approach to out of possession where you're even going up against some of the teams at the top of the league and you're pressing high, you're, you're potentially leaving yourself exposed if things don't go right? It's, it's bold. I mean, a big part of their strategy last season out of possession in part of being slightly more passive and hitting teams in transition was the fact they had Floyd Balogun up front who scored, I think, the highest proportion of a team's goals, I think, across Europe's leagues. He scored, it was over 20. Um, of course, he was on loan from Arsenal at the time and has since now moved to Monaco. So uh, I guess it's a case of that was clearly a very, not necessarily temporary, but 
that looked to me like it was still working with the players that he had in the dynamic that he had. And also the fact that he came in on an interim basis and then got the job permanently. Um, so I think now it's a case of, OK, we want to dominate games more and better. Um, there's an awful lot of sort of one goal wins and, and narrow wins and that long unbeaten run when they did win games. Um, and now it's a case of, I think, OK, can we dominate? Can we blow teams away a bit more? Um, can we sort of take control? and? I think it can be difficult to have a style where you require midfielders and defenders to make tackles a lot because now yellow cards get dished out quite easily, uh, even in Liga compared to sort of the, the Premier League. So that is then obviously carrying a bigger risk of players getting sent off. And when you're on a yellow card, you could you just have to make fewer tackles uh, and suspensions then become a thing. Um, so they're, they're definitely quite effervescent. Oh, I can't say the word effervescent um, without the ball. Um, and it's working. It's working so far. Mm. I was also add as well, I think, like, rather than uh, Nice where, you know, they've got that kind of more interesting approach and we're thinking, like, I guess if you're a casual observer, you think, oh, like, they're doing something new and different. I think the thing to hammer home about Will Still and Ahrem, and which is what we said about the, the intro, right, about league gun teams uh, with a good out-of-possession approach of blowing the league away. Like, I look at Will Still's Ahrem and I don't think, I, I don't look at it and think, oh, this is a very unusual approach. I feel like they're just doing, like, don't want to say basic, but like what we talk about without a possession, like trapping teams out wide, a controller centre, they just do that to incredibly high standard. And it feels like that's what's driven their rise up the table. Like they feel like the biggest statement here of if you nail out of possession, you can dominate this league at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, let's have a look at the numbers though, because I think when you compare their numbers to Nice, you can see the difference in, in the approach. Because as we've said, Nice are top of the table when it comes to expected goals against. Um, with 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 ten now, Rams have around fifteen, um, so five more expected goals against than uh, than Nice, and that puts them sort of around what's that eighth ish uh, on on the table when you when you order by that metric. Uh, in terms of goals uh, for and goals against, so it goes against obviously Nice have, uh, are overperforming their expected goals uh, numbers, but they they have four. Rams have eighteen, as you mentioned before, Liam. Mm. And I guess the the way that I would think about this is, well, okay, with this kind of aggressive out of possession system, a lot of it is about generating attacking upside as well. Um, but when you look at the numbers in terms of the the xG, uh, Nice have actually put up more xG than than Rams, uh, and Rams have scored four more goals than than Nice. But you know, it doesn't appear that that trade off is necessarily there. I think Nice have got a slightly better squad. I mean, they've also got a much better financial situation being being bankrupt by by Ineos, so that that definitely helps. I, I think th there's one, and I, I really like really like Rams's sort of attacking approach because it's, it's fairly unique in how direct they're prepared to play. Often that they'll go in behind to to Durami, the the number nine they signed in the summer. There's a lot of diagonals to Junior Ito out on the right, who people might have seen play play for Japan, and he is a right footed right winger, whereas on the left. Uh, um, they, they've got a right footer, so uh, it's a bit more lopsided sometimes. Um, and I think just when you are prepared to hit so many diagonals and play so direct, you are going to lead to more turnovers. They quite quickly get the ball outfield, get into crossing positions. If anyone wants to see a great example of that, the first half against Monaco, they hit in so many crosses um, and probably should have had, had goals to, to show from it. Um, whereas... Nice, I think there was a point earlier this season where they'd actually played more three balls and switches of play, which I think just shows how they're prepared to risk the ball or not risk it. Um, and when you are being direct and you are being aggressive with the ball, you are going to risk more turnovers and you are going to be quite expansive when you do lose it. It can be harder to counter press. 
Yeah, and something to add as well, just in uh, Wolstall's favour at the moment, is their goalkeeper's not having a particularly good season. Uh, Jefan Duf, like this is in the numbers where he's underperforming what we said earlier, post-shot expected goals. But uh, yesterday I went through and watched every goal that Akram uh, have conceded so far. And like it's not even just a case of some that he should save. There's quite often, he, he, what his problem is, and I say this quite richly as someone about to play jo- football with John McKenzie later, <laughs> he will report back and say I'm a hypocrite. But um uh, Duke's handling is pretty poor, like from corners and crosses, he or, quite often tends to punch it, which has landed his team in trouble, whether he's punched it to an opponent or just outside of his box where he doesn't need to, the opponent comes in and scores. So I feel like with a better goalkeeper, we'd actually see this team rising higher. Yeah, you're a brave man bringing up uh, goalkeeping performances oh, against John, me. You've, you've never held any bad goalkeeping performances against <laughs> me. <laughs> yes. Let's just talk before we finish about, again, the relationship between the attacking approach and the out-of-possession approach because we've mentioned it already with, with Farioli. It may be being the case that the more conservative approach doesn't actually generate um, much attacking upside. But I think what we get really nice with Will Still is just the relationship between the out-of-possession approach then bleeding into the the attacking approach. And again, I mentioned Andoni Areola at Bournemouth at the moment, um, who's slowly starting to turn things around there. But one of the things I've always noticed from players, uh, managers like that, and I think that Will Still and um, Areola are very similar in terms of the way that they set up, is that the out-of-possession approach is designed to then have these structures in place which you can then attack from really nicely. So the idea is you win the ball back and then you know the routes to goal in order to cause problems. So any thoughts on on that relationship? Because I think, again, you've, you've mentioned already that um, perhaps Will Still is the, the great example of if you have a really modern out-of-possession approach, you can do well in this league. And I think a big part of it is to do with that fact that the out-of-possession and the in-possession are so closely related. Yeah, it- <laughs> At the risk of repeating myself, it depends how you want the football to be played and where you're prepared to risk the the problems that, that they do they do or don't have. I mean, you, you look at the the wins that they've had, and there's a great example: um, the away game against Lille, where they they score two goals in very quick succession and hit them on the break. And they are really capable of going to top teams and scoring very incisive goals, mm-hmm. um, hitting them on transition really really quickly. Obviously, they showed that. A great example was was Balogun's goal at PSG last season, where you know they're they're losing. It's about to be full time. The ball drops from a goal kick, and they just uh, they they send it in behind. Um, and it just it then comes down to, and I think we see it now more than ever that certain managers just aren't willing to risk losing a ball in a certain way because you don't want to deal with the negative more than you care about what the sort of the positive or the upside of it could be um, and then you look at you sort of compare and contrast the goals that they they score between sort of uh, Nice and Rams and, and Nice score a lot more sort of cutbacks and situations where they've got into those advanced areas through wide combinations um, and that's just obviously n- not the same for Rams. Something to potentially warn Will still about at the moment is that so like to really detail again like the way they attack as you kind of said like, I think also when you watch Rams play like You'll quite often see balls going into the channel, and like whether it was Balogun last season, we'll still praise him a lot for this, or uh, Dikite this season, like running the channels. And I think you need a lot of space for that. And what I notice in the stats this season, as I continue to cosplay Mark Carey, is that <laughs> in the possession stats again, very interesting. And I know possession possession isn't the you know the caveat isn't the be all and end all here stat. Like this isn't the all teller thing, but it's easy to understand, and it is help and telling that. In all the games that Kram uh, have played, where they've got 51% possession or over, which is about seven games, they've won just one of them. Mm-hmm. And all the games they've played under, which is six games, they've won five of them. 
it's extremely telling. When when they have the ball, they do struggle a lot more. Also kind of a game state team, just on the reverse of what we were saying before about Nice. Yeah, yeah. So again, another team to keep our eye on as we, we go through the season. And hopefully both teams will be there and thereabouts when it comes to deciding the European spots at the end of League 1. But we should conclude this podcast. It's been great chatting to you guys. Um, I'm going to end it with one question. Um, we've talked a lot about the, the coaching revolution in Liga and this seems to be happening at the moment. Uh, we've looked at a couple of examples of what that coaching revolution looks like and explored particularly the out-of-possession ideas. But I just wanted to put a more general question to you guys, which is just what do you think that this coaching revolution is going to mean for League uh, in general and looking into the future? Um, I think you can ask this positively or negatively. I think the positive side, if you're a French football fan, is that I think all paths lead to... Uh, success in Europe I think uh, this is going to raise the standard of French teams I think for the league I think this is going to lead to PSG dominating a lot more like Luis Enrique has already spoke about how he's a massive fan of Will Still and like what he's doing he's said before and after the game I think the next step we're going to see is PSG who we've not spoken so much about in this podcast uh, I think if even if you watch them once in the Champions League they really struggle under a high press I think we're going to see PSG really up there out of possession game up and dealing with out of possession systems and they're going to get a lot better maybe that leads to them getting a European trophy but I do feel like which is why you know I hope Nice I hope Nice stay in the top because I think this might be their only shot at winning the title before it returns to Paris for a good few years so you're saying Will still is the reason why PSG are going to win the Champions League I'm saying ginger people are the reason (laughs) (laughs) I agree completely on the European side of things I mean to end on a positive note when you look at the French teams they're doing really well in Europe so far this season um, excluding PSG who are a a bit bit on a knife edge really but Marseille top of their uh, Europa League group near the top of a quite poor Conference League group but still you have to win those games uh, to lose a second behind Liverpool uh, in their Europa League group and Achena top of their Europa League group despite actually sacking Bruno Genesio, their, their manager, early on this season. Um, so that that paints quite a positive picture. I think France are expected to be one of the heavyweights going into the next Euros as well, um, next summer. So that when you look at the fact from that's going to be six years sort of post-World Cup 18 when they won, that's really impressive longevity to have. In fact, that might, uh, people might say this is blasphemous, but that might be going beyond that era of Spain that we saw when they, they won the World Cup and, and the two Euros so for being that good for a period of time or at least the best in Europe we've seen since then. So it's really good on that side of things. It just might mean that, again, the league continues to have a bit of a ceiling on there. But if they can go and have some European success, I think that will help with the TV rights deal. And I'm hoping as well that the influx of talent that will come out of it and the young coaches will make it more watchable and will help with the TV rights. And that is also needed. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right, to level the playing field. If they can then get the finances, they can be more competitive. So it's a big thumbs up from us for league on this season. It's the league to watch. It's been very, yeah. yeah, it's been very enjoyable. Um, I've not watched it much before, uh, and I'm watching. I'm watching every Nice game, for example, at the moment, and, and very much enjoying it. So, big recommend for us to go and check out um, French football right now because out of possession has saved French football. Who who knew that? And that if would the, if there isn't a game where it's tactically interesting, you can bet Marseille fans will cause some drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, guys, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. So, Liam Tharm can be found on Twitter at Liam Tharm Coach, and. Alex Barker can be found on Twitter at EuroExpert underscore. Indeed. Yeah. And of course, all of the content that they're putting out is going out on The Athletic in various forms. So do check that out as well. But once again, thank you so much both for coming on. Mm